Hallelujah. Let's go ahead and bow our head as we come to it. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We are so privileged and blessed to be able to come together like this and proclaim your word, teach on your word out in the open without fear, without concern for our lives. Father, we are so privileged, and I pray that we would never become jaded to the reality of that, Father, that we would always recognize that it is a privilege, it is a blessing. There are so many who don't have the same opportunity. So this morning, Father, I pray as we stand before your word that we have our hearts ready to receive it, Father, that, that, we, that, that the word would find fertile soil in our hearts to produce fruit ten, one hundred, and even a thousand times. So, Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I'm not going to mess around too much today because we've got a lot to get through. So today I've entitled the message, A Renewed Mind. And it's the, as we continue on this study of the book of Romans, I want to give a quick recap of where we're at so far. One, we learned from Paul that God is not a respecter of persons. How many know that's a good thing? That's a good thing for me because if I were me, I wouldn't let me in. So I'm thanking God that he's going to let me in. The truth be told, you guys should all be thankful I'm not God. (sighs) Hey. You can say quiet amen. How come I can't get you guys to say amen any other time but to insult me? I expect amens the entire service now. Hallelujah. But you know what? God is not a respecter of persons, neither in the requirements for those who sin nor for his extension of grace because he's extended grace equally to all of us. We learned that including the Gentiles was not God's way of excluding the Jews, and God still has a plan and purpose for them. They're not going anywhere. And we also learn what it means to receive grace, to receive a new life inside of us. How many know that the book of Romans has been pretty awesome so far? It's a lot of amazing stuff inside of it. But today we're going to start seeing something a little bit different we're going to see that, that Paul is going to lay out what we should see when a person gets saved. How many know that when a person gets saved, if they have real saving faith, that there should be some evidence in their life? We should see a difference. There should be an impact in their life. It should begin to look different. And for some, I've seen some people get saved and overnight everything stops. They stop drinking, smoking, all, all that stuff. Their life just gets instantly transformed. When God touches their life. And other times, I've seen it take time. I know for me personally, it wasn't an overnight switch. It took time for me to, to walk with the Lord and, and begin to grow and mature in Him. But the one thing that's true for everybody, whether it happens all at once or a little at a time, is that there is change. There is evidence that something happened. There's always forward momentum. And today, Paul is going to begin to discuss what it actually looks like to be a Christian. In verse 12.1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Did you know that before we placed our trust in Christ, we used our bodies for all kinds of stupid stuff? Stuff that most of us wouldn't admit to our kids. We did all kinds of dumb stuff. At least I did, and if I did, I assume you all did too. We used our bodies for sinful pleasure and purposes, and man, we were committed. We were committed. I don't know about you guys, but 
when I look around and I see what's going on in this world, when people aren't saved, myself included, we were excellent at being sinners. We were excellent at sinning and living sinfully. But something is different is expected of us as Christians. Something is expected differently even from our bodies. Instead of living to sin and living for sin, we should be living for Him. We are to be submitting our bodies as a sacrifice to Him. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The thing about it being a sacrifice means sometimes it's not always easy. If it was easy, He wouldn't call it a sacrifice. We have to live in obedience. We have to commit to living for Him. We are to be submitting our bodies to God as a sacrifice to Him. And I think that we should be just as committed and just as excellent in living in holiness as we were in living in sin. We're supposed to present our bodies to Him. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your new body. You know what that means? That argument that it's my body doesn't really hold true. If you're saved, your body was bought for a price. Your bodies are no longer your own. And as a result, we should honor God with our bodies. And we should be using our bodies for His glory and not for our own glory and certainly not for the devil's. That time is said and past. At least one person said amen. You guys hearing me out there today? I'm gonna, I'm gonna preach to this church over here. They're talking back to me right now. Hallelujah. Our bodies are not our own, and we're supposed to be a living sacrifice. It's not like Old Testament sacrifice. You know, an Old Testament sacrifice meant death had to come, right? Death was required. And I find that interesting because interestingly enough, to, at least to me, I find that that dying for somebody would potentially be easier than living for somebody. It's easy to die for someone. He says somewhat uh, knowing that that's not actually true. But I think it's harder to live. It's a whole lot. Man, if, if you could just, all right, I'm dying today and going to be with Jesus, that'd be easy. But to live for Him your whole life, to present your body to Him as a living sacrifice, to give everything that you got, to live committed to Him like you live committed to sin, that's something. I think that requires a true sacrifice. And that's the thing, is that's how we give ourselves to God. It's living. That means we've got to be doing something. If you just come in on Sunday morning and sit on a chair, that's not really living. That's just kind of filling a spot, warming a seat. We're supposed to give ourselves to God. And as such, it says this is a service of worship. This is spiritual worship. This is one of the ways that we honor and glorify God is by living for Him. Because God can't use people who aren't willing to offer themselves up. Who wants to be used by God this morning? I know I want to be used by God. You know that God can't use you if you don't raise your hand and say, here I am, send me. God's not going to force you to do anything. And the good news is, at least for me, and I imagine for some of you, that it doesn't require any special talent or abilities. 
God can use you no matter where you're at. All you have to do is be willing and present yourself to Him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Did you guys know that you're not of this world if you're saved? That means that you have a, a, a different citizenship. The moment you got saved, you're no longer a citizen of this world, but you are a citizen of heaven. You're now aliens in a foreign land. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But because we're not citizens of this world, we're just passing through, we're transient beings, if you will, then we need to make sure that we don't let this world overtake us and let its culture influence us to the point that we don't look any different. We need to maintain who we are. And I don't mean who you were before you got saved. I mean who you are as God says you are. God says you're holy. God says you're perfect. God says you're love. God says you're victorious. God says you're an overcomer. You're more than a conqueror. That's who you are. We need to be who we are. Even when we're walking through a world that tells us that we're something completely different. So then the question comes up, the practical part. That sounds, sounds good, Pastor Wayne, but uh, I don't know if you've lived my life. It doesn't seem to be that easy. So how do we do it? How do we not become conformed to this world? We have to understand it. It requires a transformation, a renewing of your mind. A transformation in the way that you think. Because the truth is, is that how we think will influence what we do and how we act. And this being transformed by the renewal of your mind, that requires action on our point, our part. That's not just a, a, something that happens by osmosis. It would be so good if it was. I've always heard stories of people in, in college, they would play their notes as they fell asleep, hoping that it would somehow sink in while they were sleeping. I don't think it quite works that way, at least not that well. You got to make a point. You got to make a choice. And the thing is, it's not really a suggestion. It's not like God's like, it would probably be a good idea if you renewed your mind. I mean, I understand if it's too hard or it's going to be too difficult. It doesn't say that. It says, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is a command. We have to renew our mind. So what does it look like? How do we renew our mind? Joshua 1.8 says this, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. We're supposed to meditate on God's Word. And this meditation is not like Eastern meditation. You've seen Eastern meditation where they tell you to um, clear your mind, get everything out of your head. You know what happens with an empty head? All kinds of dumb stuff can move in after you clear out your mind. Don't empty your mind. Instead, fill it with that which is good and right. We don't want empty minds. We want 
minds filled with the Word of God. And actually to meditate in this context is actually to fill your mind with the Word of God. The Greek word that's being used there for, for meditate in, in the book of Joshua is, is haga. Probably how it's pronounced. But the root of that Greek word is, or of that, uh, that Hebrew word is, is to murmur. And it can be translated not just to, to meditate, but to speak or to mutter. In other words, the Word of God should be in our minds and coming out of our mouth day in and day out. This is how we strengthen our faith. This is how we renew our mind. We spend time in the Word of God. Romans 10.17, just a few chapters ago, said faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. I want you to know that if you're struggling in an area, you want to know how you get past that? You begin to search up every scripture that deals with it and you read it and you memorize it and you say it about, you have in an area that you're, you're finding defeat in your life. You find the scripture that says you are victorious and you say that to yourself, that you're more than an overcomer and you repeat that to yourself. You write it down on sticky notes and put it on your mirror and you put it on your fridge and you read it at every opportunity and you keep the word of God in your mind. And you'll see that your mind renews. Because then you don't have to remember, I'm not supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm supposed to do this. Too many Christians live their life with a, with a spiritual checklist saying, these are my do's and my don'ts. But I want you to know that if your, your mind is renewed, you don't have to have a checklist because you'll only do what you're supposed to. And the things that you're not supposed to are, are in contrast to who you are. And you'll find that if you try to do it the other way, you'll never succeed. Because you've, you're just the, the same mind that you've always had. Christianity is not about a, a set of rules and regulations. It's about having a relationship with God that changes you, that makes you want to live a life that is pleasing to Him. And when your mind comes in, into step with His, then all of a sudden you'll find that the things that you're thinking about are the things that God's thinking about, and you don't think about the things that God doesn't think about, so you're no longer tempted to do the stupid things that you had in your checklist before. Renew your mind. And when we do that, we become a living testament to God's will. We become a living testament when we live our lives as living sacrifices with the renewed mind. That's what he says. You may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When your mind is in step with his, then you think like him. And as a result, you are a, a testament to the people around you. And we prove God's will for our lives. When we live this way, even those who think our living for God is crazy or misplaced, we prove that God is working in us and has a plan for our lives. Because when you live like that, people look at you and go, there's something different about them. And it's always hardest with the people that are closest to you because they think that you're full of it. And it takes them years to realize that something has changed. And this doesn't mean that we have to do everything perfect and that there will be no trials. You're going to have rough times. You're going to struggle. But the question is, are you dealing with it with a checklist or with the Word of God? Because if your mind is in step with Christ, if you're spending time in your Word, 
you're spending time in prayer with Him, you're going to find that you're equipped to deal with everything that comes your way. Man, no. I'm just going to wait till you guys say amen. That was, a good, that was good stuff right there. Man, it's, is this not good preaching? I feel like it's good preaching. Then he continues on in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Do not think more highly of yourself than you. You know, as Christians, we're not supposed to be boastful or prideful because pride is a super dangerous thing. You want to know what the biggest danger of pride is? Is that you're looking at yourself instead of looking at God. Your eyes are somewhere else. There's a story about this young new professional. He finally just got promoted. And everything's doing great and he gets put in his new office and he's thinking to himself, man, I finally made it. I'm finally here. I'm important. I got the promotion. I'm doing well. And then he gets a call from his reception. says, there's someone here to see you. And he figured, all right, this is my first client. I want to make an impression. So he picks up his phone and he begins to speak into it. And he says, Come in, come in. Well, thank you so much. I got to know right now, are we going to make the deal or not? Because this is an opportunity you don't want to miss. Oh, wait, I have somebody coming in. Let me give you a call right back. And the guy that walks in just shakes his head and says, I'm here to hook up your phone. (laughs) Don't try to look more important than you are. But you know, you know something that we have to recognize in this situation is it says, don't think of yourself as more important than you ought. But you have to understand the you ought part as well. Recognizing your gifts and using them to glorify God is important. To downplay or become so humble that you don't use them or you're ineffective in the kingdom of God, that's worthless. God has given you gifts and talents and abilities for a reason. And the truth is, is the, the people that are playing the false humility cards, it's just another form of pride. They're just prideful on how low they can be. Fishing for compliments. Anybody ever known somebody fishing for compliments? It's just another form of pride. I mean, we see it all the time. Today with social media, people put up a, a picture that they obviously spent Tons of time getting ready for getting the lighting just right, doing their makeup, and they're like, just woke up. <laughs> or my favorite ones are the, oh, if you've ever seen them, they'll have people that somehow they want to have these pictures of that they can say that their girlfriend or boyfriend caught them sleeping. So they'll, they'll be half asleep, stuff slayed everywhere, and, and then you'll see a mirror in the background, and actually it's their feet holding their phone to take the picture. <laughs> But they forgot the mirror was there so you can see it. And it's not, it's not like there's one. They're all over the place. The vainness and pridefulness of people today is astonishing. But we're to have sound judgment and realize that who we are in Christ. You know, to say that you're victorious is not being prideful. That's who God says you are. If you say you did it on your own, that's an issue. But if you recognize that it's in Him, 
And recognizing who Christ made you to be is not pride. Attributing those talents and abilities that God has blessed you with to yourself is. When you recognize that it's Him that's given you these things. And we each have a part to play. We each have our own skills and abilities. And we each have a plan and purpose for our lives. Every single person in this room wants to use for His glory. And as long as we don't get wrapped up in ourselves, God can use us. If we can say, here we are. Verse 4 through 8, it says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You know that there's nothing in the world that is made up that is not made up of different individual pieces? Especially in today's complex world, the stuff that we see around us. No business operates with just salespeople. Because if there were only salespeople, who would deliver and install what was sold? Or the other way around, if no one sold it, how would there be any to install? What's the point of making them if they're not going to get out there? And can you imagine a car only made of steering wheels? I don't think it would drive very well. Eh, it might drive better than some of my old cars. But without the motor or all the parts that make up the motor, a car can't be powered. Without gas in the tank, the motor has no fuel. And without tires, the car couldn't roll and you can keep going on down that lane. And it's the same. It's the same in the body of Christ. We each have our roles and responsibilities as well. And each role is important, even the least significant, the least glamorous of them all is important. Matter of fact, the scripture says that on those, they will be bestowed greater honor. We all have a part to play, but we're supposed to exercise them and these gifts by faith. We serve him by faith. Matter of fact, the scripture says that anything that we don't do of faith is sin. And we trust God to use us. And we recognize that those gifts are from God. We also have to realize that we're not to try to do things that we don't have the ability to do just because it's a great position. You know, sometimes we get in our head, what are the things that we want to do? And this is, I, you know, I'm, I'm only going to be on the worship team. That's all I'll do. And we have to to, to recognize that just because something is a great position doesn't mean you should be there. Just because you want to be seen up front singing, if when you sing it sounds like somebody hitting a cat with a baby, you probably shouldn't be up front. <laughs> That's why Michelle's not up here. Nor on the drums. <laughs> That's all right. She does stuff that I can't do, so praise God. Because <laughs> that's the reality, too, is that there's a real reason that I actually let Michelle head up a lot of the things that go on in this church. Michelle has always been, from the beginning, spearheading the youth there, the, the children's ministry. 
And I, I don't because that's not something that I am gifted in. If I tried to do it all, one, I'd become overwhelmed, and two, I'd be ineffective in the things that I'm supposed to do. And the truth is, is that it would take away from the responsibilities that I have. It's one of the reasons I'm, I'm constantly trying to get people involved and hand them areas of responsibility because I can't do everything. That's why the apostles decided to, to choose a group of disciples to make sure the Hellenistic Jewish widows would get their portion of the food. And he says, let's pick out some brothers. This is in Hebrews, or I'm sorry, Acts 6, 22 through 4. He says, let's pick out some brothers that can do this because it's not good for us to serve widows because we should be devoting ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And it wasn't because the apostles weren't capable of doing these things or they were too high and mighty to do these things because they had a different role to fulfill. But on the other hand, this whole argument I just made, not trying to step into something you're not supposed to do, sometimes you have to step up and do what must be done. The truth is, is, and this is true about myself or my wife or Kathy and Joseph, if a toilet needs to be cleaned, then we'll do it. Currently, I do most of the technological stuff for the church right now. I also do a lot of the advertising stuff, even though people are, are starting to come in and help me. I thank God for Nick, who's sick today, but he helps me out with a lot of the technolo technology stuff, and, and Jessica, who is is uh, with her, her husband's father who's going through a rough patch. Keep that family in prayer. The father is, is uh, likely going to pass away soon. Um, but she helped me with a lot of the, the, the Facebook and the social media marketing. She stepped up in helping me. As you guys notice, I'm still up here leading worship. The thing is, is for all these things, I have the technical know-how, but I'm not necessarily gifted or really have the time for all of these things. But because there's no one else at the moment, I do it. Sometimes we have to step up and do things that maybe aren't what we think we should be doing, not our gifting. We might even think they're below our station. But the truth is, is that sometimes you have to step in and do what needs to be done. And for all of those things, if anybody has giftings in those areas and would like to become a part and get more involved, come speak to me. I welcome you to get involved. Even in stuff that's already been done. Right now, Nick and Norman make sure that the church is clean every single Sunday for every single Sunday service. But I'm sure that they could use some help. We have room on the greeters team. If we can find people that are con consistent and faithful and can be here to, to invite people in when they show up, we have room in all those areas. And we have so many people helping out in the children's church which is such a blessing to Michelle and I, but there's always room. If God has given you a gift, use it. Because He didn't give it for you to hold inside. He gave it to you to be used for His kingdom and for His glory. And I mean that. Everything that you're good at, everything that God has gifted you with, was meant for His glory. Even if you're using it at your job, it should be giving God glory in your workplace. That's why we, we work in the God and not in, as unto men. But on the other hand, this doesn't mean vigilante either. I think there's too many Christian vigilantes. But the truth is, God is a God of order. 
So approach and work with the leadership. If you want to get started in any of these areas, talk to Michelle, talk to myself, talk to Joseph and Kathy. We can get you plugged in. Find out what the vision is of the, of the home that you're in right now and co-labor towards it. Amen? And then he goes on, continuing to describe what a Christian looks like. Let love be genuine. This is Romans 12, 9-13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's a list, huh? Paul's just like, let me tell you what it's like to be a Christian. (laughs) Shotgun list. And he starts, love is to be genuine. I like how he starts with love because I think that's the greatest characteristic that we should have as Christians. But he says love is to be genuine. That means without hypocrisy. We cannot be Christians and say one thing with our mouths and do something completely different with our bodies. We cannot say that we love one another but gossip and slander each other behind one another's backs. And this goes for other Christians or the unsaved alike. We cannot say that we love people but limit who we share God's love with by how they, how they are dressed or with where they live. Paul actually reminded Timothy You remember Timothy was one of Paul's young pastors that he was training up. And in 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, The aim of our charge is to love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge is love. Then he goes on to say, To abhor what is evil. It's not the same thing as abhorring those who do evil. There is a difference. The trite saying is, hate the sin, love the sinner. Everyone likes to say it. Nobody actually likes to do it. But we should. To love one another with brotherly affection is to be there for one another, to be like a family. One of the things I always like to remind people is that here at Living Hope Family Church, we are a family. And families are there for one another. They're there when when the yard needs, somebody needs help laying gravel or when somebody needs help moving. A families get together more than just one day a week. As a family, we should be, be communicating and having interactions with one another as often as we can. So the question is, have we decided in our hearts to be available to one another in the body of Christ? Or are we too busy? Too much stuff going on? And truthfully, that can be anything from just prayer or help somebody move couches. Then he goes on to say that we're to outdo one another in showing honor. And that's just to treat one another as more important than ourselves. Philippians 2 3 is a scripture that I find I'm quoting to people more and more lately. And it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's quickly becoming one of my favorite scriptures. I 
I often wonder, what would the world look like if we all had that attitude, we all had that mentality? What would churches look like if we all had that attitude and mentality? We need to recognize it and see others as Christ sees them. Instead of seeing their flaws, see them how Christ made them, which was perfect in Him. And then the continue on, he says, do not to not be slothful in zeal. And what that means is to be steadfast. Other translations translated as not lagging behind in diligence. That means not to give up, but to be consistent in our love to one another, also in serving the Lord. And then he says to have a fervent spirit, which is to have a passionate spirit. And it's a passion to serve the Lord and to serve one another. And then he goes on to say we're to rejoice in hope. You guys know the difference between joy and happiness? Happiness is the result of our circumstances. Joy is in spite of them. Let me give you a simple example. I have an ice cream cone. That makes me happy. I drop my ice cream cone. I'm no longer happy. But I can still have joy. Because my joy had nothing to do with the ice cream cone. It had everything to do with, with Christ in me. I have His joy. Too many people get them confused. You can be unhappy and still be joyful. The thing about circumstances is they change. But our joy, the rejoicing that we have in hope in Christ, that can't be changed, that can't be stolen away from you. And he says we are to contribute to the needs of the saints. And that's not just financial. I think that's where most of us go when we think of contributing to the needs. We think, oh, we've got to give people money. And you should if you have it. But it's, and it certainly does include the financial aspect, but it's also the physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being of others. Contribute to their needs. If somebody's struggling, walk alongside them, pray with them. Is somebody trying to study to learn more? Help teach them. And then he goes on to say, practicing hospitality. He says, seek to show hospitality. And that's just the welcoming of people. A generous reception of friends and strangers. One of the things that I hope that every person that walks in these buildings feels welcome and they feel loved. They were greeted by everybody in the church because we're glad to have you here. And then he keeps going in verses 12, 14 through 16. Bless those who, those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So now he talks about how we should behave with those who would consider friends and family, you know, the, the, the body of Christ, and even those who aren't saved. But now he begins to deal with with how we deal with those we would consider our enemies. And this is where things get a little bit more difficult. Because it's easy to be lovely to people who are lovely. But it's a lot more difficult to be lovely to people who aren't. Treating well those who treat you well is so much easier than treating those who well who treat you poorly. But it's 
It's a commandment that's pretty important to God because we see it quite often. Jesus said a couple things about it. Matthew 5, 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 23, 34a, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When he commanded, then he showed how it's done. And we see Stephen, while he was being stoned, cried out in the same manner. In Acts 7, 60, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This is the characteristic of a Christian that we should be following. And actually, as often as it is mentioned, should tell us that it's pretty important to God. And then he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Did you know that when others are rejoicing, we should rejoice with them? And right now you're all thinking, well, duh, that makes sense, Pastor Wayne. Why wouldn't we? But think back. I bet you there was a time when one of your coworkers got promoted. And instead of rejoicing with them, you begin to argue with yourself and point out all the reasons it should have been you and not them. Or if you were wanting to have a baby and, and one of your friends got pregnant and you have that sense of jealousy because it was them and not you. The truth is, is that we should rejoice with people and be happy for them. One of, the, one of my coworkers just recently left for a new position. And he had a, a great heart about it because when he got the job offer, which was significantly more than we were paying him, he came in and he talked to, to my boss and let him know what was going on. And, and I, I think, and even through the, his last two weeks that he was there, like he felt so bad, like he was leaving us and letting us down. And, and uh, he was you know, concerned that, that if we were going to be okay. And I don't know what, what he expected from us when he came in and told us that we were going to be upset, that maybe he thought we were going to be leaving him us high and dry. But we were so excited for him to be moving up, to be moving on, to, to, to be able to provide for his family, but have a job that was going to work out for him. And that's how we should be. Rejoicing for people. Now he makes a lot more than I do, but I'm still happy for him. Plus, I know a secret. God's going to take care of me no matter what happens with somebody else. God is faithful. God will provide what I need. God will make sure that I'm taken care of. I don't have to be jealous of somebody else's success. I can rejoice with them. As a matter of fact, I think that's the key to rejoicing with other people is understanding that, that just because somebody gets something, that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. God is still there for you. And then he said we should weep with those who weep. The truth is, is that we're one body. We're one family. When somebody is struggling, we are all struggling. What affects one of us affects all of us. One of my favorite stories in the, in the Scriptures is, is, is that when Jesus wept. Remember when Lazarus was in the tomb? He'd been dead for a few days. You can tell it was bad because in the King James it says, He stinketh. He'd been there for a while. He was dead. And Jesus takes his time coming back. And he gets there. And it's such an interesting verse where it says Jesus wept because I read this and I think many people must think that Jesus was like, oh, this is terrible. I feel bad for Lazarus. I feel bad. Wait a minute, I have an idea. Maybe I can bring him back to life. This is a, this is a good idea. I think I'm going to try it. When the reality was that was his plan the whole time. He knew he was going to bring Lazarus back. This wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Matter of fact, this was to glorify God 
all the way through and through. So he knew this was happening. So why was Jesus crying for Lazarus then? I think it's because the people around him were hurting. They didn't know. His friends and his family, they were upset with him. If you had just been here, you could have saved him. That's what they said. And they're crying and they're hurting. And Jesus wept because they wept. He knew Lazarus was coming back. But what happens to one of us happens to all of us. We hurt when others hurt. And then he says, that we need to be of the same mind towards one another. To live in harmony with one another is what it this translation says others said to be in the same mind towards one another. And basically how we do that is we view each other the way that Christ views us. Second Corinthians 5.16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. We need to see people how Christ sees people. I think if you changed your viewpoint when you look at somebody that might annoy you or might make it tough for you or might inconvenience you if you look at them the way Christ does and recognize that He loves them just the way that they are. Matter of fact, He loved them so much that He went to the cross for them. You have to take a step back and reevaluate how you think about people. And then Paul deals with pride once again. How many know that pride is something we should deal with? Pretty important to God because he, he points out how, how damaging it can be quite often. He says we should not hold our station in high esteem or uh, we should not associate with the lowly. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. We can't put ourselves in a situation where we somehow think that we're better than somebody else or we can't associate with somebody because we're higher than them. We should associate with all regardless of their station or social status. How many of you guys, when you drive down the street and you see somebody on the side of the road asking for money, never look at them? It's almost like we're ashamed. And he goes on to say, don't consider yourself wise in your own sight. Turns out that when you're looking at yourself, standards aren't very high. certainly lower than those we set for others. You ever notice that we consider ourselves in the best of times but we perceive others in the worst of times? We ignore our failures and just think of the good, but when we see others, their failures tend to stand out and we ignore the good. Don't consider yourself wise by your own standards. Then he goes on, repay in verse 17 and 18, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I know I'm going a little long today. You guys all right? Are we, are we doing okay? Should I get a water bottle up here and squirt people that are, that are nodding off? Got a little bit longer to go, but I want to get through all of this. So if you pay no, no one evil for evil, do you know that paying back evil affects you more than it affects the other person? And this includes retaliation towards them as well as using something that someone does as a license to perform your own ungodly acts. 
Now, I understand there's been a few times where I'm like, if I can just be backslidden for 15 minutes, we'll take care of this. But the truth is, that'll do more damage to you than to anybody else. And so many of us look at somebody else and all of a sudden use that as an excuse to, to do something stupid in our own life. And the truth is, that's why as Christians, we have to be so careful with the, the, what people see us doing as well. Because the thing is, so many of us have said, oh, if so-and-so is doing that, then, then I'm not going to do it. Or so-and-so only comes to church once a month, I guess that's okay. I think I'm just going to do it too. And we use somebody else's disobedience or, or slacking off to do our own thing. And then finally, says we're to keep peace with all men, if possible. The thing is, if they won't be reconciled to you, no matter what you do, then you're not under obligation. But you are under obligation to try. The Scripture says if you come to the altar with your gift and you, you, you know that, that uh, someone has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go to them and be reconciled. It doesn't say if you have something against somebody else. It says if you know somebody has something against you, Leave your gift at the altar. It's whatever we can do to be at peace with all men is something that we should be doing. And the truth is, is that they ultimately have to make a decision on their end as well. But we're under obligation to try, amen? And then in 19 through 21, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Man, like I said so often, it seems like we want the opportunity to get revenge and somehow that'll make it all right. There was once a trucker who was sitting in uh, one of those diners and he's having his meal and a couple bikers showed up and they pulled up and they walk in and they're just drunk and they want to start a fight. So they walk up to this trucker and they grab his food and they just throw it on the floor. And everybody expected the trucker to get up and get all upset and to make a scene or to fight him to doing these things, but he doesn't. He just looks at him and he, he smiles. And he asks the waitress for the bill. And not only did he pay his bill, he gave her an excellent tip and he just walks out of the restaurant. And those bikers begin to call him names. Man, what a wuss. He won't even stand up for himself. And the waitress is looking out the window and she goes, well, I don't know anything about that, but I do know he's a poor driver. He just ran over those motorcycles parked out front. See, we, we all laugh because we think revenge is somehow going to make a difference. And revenge is a hard thing because sometimes Man, it just feels like justice isn't being done. We feel like that, God, why isn't anything happening? And we feel like maybe if we can just punish that person, then everything is going to be all right. This is particularly dangerous in marriages. But it's not going to make a difference if we try to pun if we punish people. It's not going to make anybody feel better. Matter of fact, this is such a a known thing that even in the, the secular world, even people that aren't Christians, you find movies about it all the time. The movies are all about revenge. And in the end, they get the revenge and it doesn't fix anything. Do you feel any better? No. It doesn't make a difference. 
But the truth is, is there is payment to be had. He says, God says, don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to Him. Romans 2.5 says this, if they're not saved, it says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Even people that seem like they're getting away with it now, if they don't repent and turn to God, they're going to be storing up wrath for themselves. And the worse they are, the more they store. And if they are saved, then we have to recognize that the payment, the wrath for that was already paid by Jesus. That's what he says. Leave wrath to him. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you'll heap burning coals on his head. Man, I remember I used to read this. I didn't know what it was talking about. I mean, that sounded like that was painful. Like, I'll just be nice to him and it'll punish him. Tell me, does anybody else think heaping coals on top of your head sounds like a good thing? But it turns out, if you read about what's actually being said here, it's not something bad happening to them. There were times when a person's fire went out and the neighborly thing to do was to give them coals that they would carry in a pan on their head to relight their fire. Or it could be pointing to the Egyptian ritual at the time that when a person repented, they would carry a pan of coals on their head to show that repentance that they had. The point here is this wasn't a punishment. This was a good thing. Matter of fact, by being kind to them, by feeding them, by supporting them, you are helping them on their way to repentance. By treating them kindly, hopefully we're driving them to repentance. How many people with heart have been had their hearts softened because somebody showed them kindness and love instead of rejection and hate. And when we act that way, we are showing Christianly love. And by doing so, we are overcoming evil with good. Church, this is the Christian kind of Christian that I want to be. I want to be like people, I want to be a person who's presenting my body as a living sacrifice. And I want to challenge you all. Let us all be people who present God with our bodies as a living sacrifice. Let us all be a people who are renewing our minds daily. And let us all be a people who don't just say they're Christians, but we actually look and act like Christians. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.